The following message was presented during the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministries 2017 Prophecy Conference season. Now here's Steve Herzig with a message from Daniel chapter 1 verses 1 through 21 of Faithful Resolve. The chapter I have, chapter 1, is a faithful resolve. Daniel, a faithful resolve. Now, I've told this audience through the years, and I've been here at Lancaster with Friends of Israel now for 20 uh, years of my 40 with Friends of Israel. And I've told the crowds, and it's true, I'm not proud of it, but I, I want to give you perspective. Jewish people are all supposed to be smart. Um, well, many of us are, but I graduated in the top 10% of the lower third of my class. <laughs> That's true. And so in order for me to understand things, they have to be where I could reach the cookies, so to speak. Okay, I, I, I'm not up there in the high shelves. I'm, I'm down here. And chapter 1 of Daniel talks about integrity. Doesn't, there's, the word's not there, but when we think of Daniel, and dare to be a Daniel, he stood alone, we think of integrity. So I looked up the word integrity, and here's the highfalutin um, description of integrity. A firm adherence to a code, especially of moral or artistic values, incorruptibility, an unimpaired condition, soundness, the quality or state of being, complete or undivided, completeness. So you have in, incorporability, soundness, and completeness. In my head, I can barely read it, but it's blah, 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 blah to me. It really is. I want to know what, what is integrity? How, how can we bring integrity down? Dwight Eisenhower, when uh, talking on the subject, said the supreme quality for leadership, without it, no success is possible. So I know it's important. A military genius and a president, both in the same body, says that integrity for leadership is really important. So how, how can I bring this down to my level? Well, I have a couple stories for you that I'd like to tell you. One, and it's a true story. At least I'm told it's a true story. And it involved a football player who played center for the Notre Dame University. His name was Frank Simensky. Simensky. Uh, I come from Polish background. I still have trouble. I have to ask Timothy to help me with that word. But uh, Frank, in 1940, was called to a jury. He had to testify. And he got on the stand, and the judge said, are you on the Notre Dame football team this year? He said, yes, Your Honor. What position? Center, Your Honor. How good a center are you? Well, according to the story, Simeski squirmed in his seat and said firmly, Sir, I'm the best center Notre Dame has ever had. Well, his coach was actually in the courtroom, Frank Leahy. He was in the courtroom, and he was kind of surprised because Frank was a pretty humble guy. He didn't, he didn't strike uh, the coach as being you know, way up there and bragging. And so he went over to him. And he said, hey, Frank, I, I heard you out there. I was kind of surprised that you said you're the best center on Notre Dame football. He said, coach, I hated to do it, but I was under oath. <laughs> ah, integrity. 
I get it. Integrity. Integrity. We need to have integrity. Well, there's a second story. And this one probably not true, but one that's told to children. It's an old children's story. And it involves an emperor who was getting older and he wanted to turn over power to another person in the kingdom. He didn't have a child, and so he was going to turn this over. So he called a whole group of people from his kingdom, and he told them that he was handing them a seed, a seed. And they were to take that seed and plant it and bring it back in a year. And he was going to evaluate the plants that came. So they all took their seed. One of the young men took the, his seed, planted it. He was with his mother, and he, you know, he watered it faithfully. He'd go to school, and there'd be all these uh, plants. They're growing and growing. His isn't doing anything, nothing. They're growing. Each one seems to get bigger and stronger, and they're bragging about their plants. And a year comes, and he tells his mother, I can't, I'm not going. I'm ashamed. Look, I'm the only one. I planted it. I watered it. I tended it. I got nothing, zero, and all these plants. His mother said, no, you should go. You, you, you better go. So he went, but he hid. He was hiding. And all these people brought their plants. And the emperor was looking for him. He, knew, he looked for him. And he said, come out here. He said, uh, let me see your plant. He said, well, it, it didn't grow. He said, I want to introduce to you the next emperor of the country. The seeds that I gave all of you were boiled before I gave them to you, and they're unable to grow. He's the only one that was honest. Integrity. See, I, when you go, oh, you get it. I get it. It takes a while to get it. But that's what integrity is. West Point has a prayer. And I know it's been all kinds of controversy, especially several years ago, with the right to do this prayer and Atheists have now come to West Point and objected, but listen to the West Point cadet prayer, and you get a sense of what integrity might look like. Make us to choose the harder right instead of the easier wrong, and never to be content with a half-truth when a whole can be won. Endow us with courage that is born of loyalty to all that is noble and worthy, that scorns to compromise with vice and injustice and knows no fear when truth and right are in jeopardy. That's a great prayer and something that I think they should still do at West Point. So we look at Daniel chapter 1, and we get an idea as we look at this chapter and get an idea of Daniel. Now, um, when we look at the countries that are compromised or conquered, there are two countries that are involved here. Judah is one, and... Uh, the Babylon is the other. And there's leaders that are involved. Jehoiakim is one of the leaders. And Jehoiakim, when you look at Jehoiakim, his, his uh, grand, uh, grandson, great-grandson, was he's a great-grandson of Manasseh, 55 years of leadership. Uh, the son of Josiah, and by the way, Manasseh was a bad guy. 55 years of badness, evil. Uh, Josiah was a good guy. Uh, 31 years, and then you have Jehoiakim, who is 11 years, and 
Um, that's the leader that God had at the time of Daniel. In fact, when, you, when we go back, we think of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the other leader of uh, Babylon. There are actually three cap times of captivity uh, or conquering of Judah. The first that affected Daniel was in 605. In 2 Kings chapter 24, uh, Nebuchadnezzar takes Daniel and his friends in 605. 598, in 2 Kings 24, verses 10 through 17, you have Ezekiel captured. And then in 587, the city of Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed. So you have two leaders, Jehoiakim and Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon, of course, is raised up by God. Very interesting to see, uh, when I was raised in a synagogue, to hear about Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and the sovereignty of God, how Nebuchadnezzar is viewed by the Jewish people, an evil uh, person, yet no doubt about it, raised up by God. By the way, the Apostle Paul uses the same kind of imagery in, in uh, Romans chapter 9 when he talks about Pharaoh, who was raised up by God. So when we think of bad things that happen, all kinds of bad things, one of the things we have to get straight in our mind, even if we don't fully understand it, though the situation might look bad and bleak, at the same time, God is in control for his own sovereign purpose. So Daniel was taken captive. Uh, Babylon was the agent to do that. And as you go through Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs. So what's going to take place, and what Jim talked about as well, taking some of chapter 1, which is fine, you're going to get a different perspective, uh, he takes them captive. And Daniel, as we were reminded, is a teenager. I can tell you this. In Judaism, by the time a young man reaches 13, now that's, look, 13's young. When, when I was 13 years old, according to Judaism, I'm a man. When I was 13 years old, I was four feet nine inches tall. <laughs> I was. Uh, I still have pictures of my bar mitzvah. We had a, you know, it was a big party and we had music and uh, you know, dancing, I invited my friends. Every girl I danced with was at least a head taller than me. So, but in Judaism, by 13, you're raised to know the law. You're raised to know the law. You're accountable as a man. And we've already been reminded that by, by the time Daniel's taken captive, he's young, he's very young, 15, 16, 17 uh, or so. But from a Jewish point of view, he's old enough to know the law. Now, does that mean he's going to be obedient to the law? Well, we've already heard a little bit about that, and we'll continue to hear about it as well. But the point is, he knew it. It is a challenge for us in the 21st century. I've done youth work. Some of you have done youth work. I've, I've been in camps, Christian camps, and uh, with my own children and at church. And we take 13, 14, 15-year-olds, and we're still doing the books of the Bible. 
and hoping they get it. I'm not being critical. I'm being honest. Uh, Daniel, and it's true for many Jewish people in observant homes, they know the word if they're observant. The average Jewish person, and might I say the average American or Canadian raised in a church, barely knows the word. Barely. If you say turn to the book of Ezekiel, and by the way, not just children, adults as well. So we need to understand when we're in this context, we give Daniel a lot of credit, and we should, absolutely should. But the home that he was raised in, the culture that he was raised in, even in the midst of unbelieving Judeans who were disobedient to God, the culture mandated knowledge and a study of the word. Jim talked about names and uh, the names that we give our kids and the meaning, and he talked about Vivian, uh, and he bragged about his granddaughter, as, as he should. Well, just a week ago, I had Elisha. Uh, my, uh, my daughter-in-law gave birth to Elisha, and uh, God is salvation. What a great name, but we're going to call him Eli. Uh, names, again, I can tell you in my years through Friends of Israel, I've gone to Christian schools, and I have talk to little people, I mean little, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, talk to them about the Jewish people, and we just have a wonderful time. But one of the things I often do is I say, what does your name mean? How did you get your name? Can I tell you something? Many of our Christian young people, or at least raised in Christian homes, have no idea how they got their name. In Judaism, your name is your story. There's a story behind your name. How did you get it? I can tell you the name. My name, Steve, Stephen, which by the way is a Greek name. It's a, I have a Hebrew name, but I also have a American or it's Greek, but it's a secular name. So when I was in synagogue, I was Yisroel Rubin. That's my Hebrew name. And I, nobody called me Steve. But when I was in school or uh, everybody knew me as Steve. No one knew who Yisroel Rubin was. But the name is extremely important. Today, it depends where you are. When I talk to some young people, I find out a lot of them don't know where, where they got their name. And then the next day, if I'm doing like a VBS, they'll come back. Oh, I asked. I know where my name came from. It came from some actress or some Hollywood thing or a movie or, or whatever. Well, that's a story. That's the, that's the point I want to make to them. It's a story. You have to be able to tell a story. I think it's important. And so... When I think of little Elisha or Vivian, as Jim spoke, what a great... Vivian has a story, and it's a great story, and it communicates the greatness of God. Elisha communicates a great story. And so if you're here and don't know what your name means, I'm not here to embarrass you, find out. You got to Google, Google it, and find out, find out how you got your name, what were the circumstances, and then what does it mean? And if it means something really good, live up to it. If it means something really bad, say, thank God, and he saved me, and I don't have to deal with it. But either way, the name becomes very, very important. And of course, as we think in terms of, uh, of Daniel and those names, you had the Hebrew names that were given to them, which all gives glory and honor to God. And then you had their names changed. 
You see, Nebuchadnezzar felt it was important, names were important, and he wanted to assimilate them. The number one enemy of the Jewish people is not the Palestinians. It's not uh, bombs that could come. It's assimilation. It's moving away from who you are and what you were called to be. They're God's chosen people. The number one problem in the church today, although many of you think it's music. I know that because I've talked to you. It's not the number one problem. The number one problem is assimilation. It's wanting to be like everybody else. Nebuchadnezzar wanted that for his captives. And he thought one of the best ways to do that was to change their names and give glory to the gods that he worshipped. But the thing that stands out with these young men that were captive, you could do all that to me. You can do any of that to me. It won't change what's here. It won't change who I am. And it won't change the faith that I have. And so the names were changed. And so we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yet we know they took a stand in chapter 3 for God. We know Daniel in the lion's den. I'll be doing chapter 6 as we go. But we know he took, to, took a stand. And why? Because of verse 8. Verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. There's the key. Daniel purposed in his heart. He made a decision. You know, I met my wife with friends of Israel, by the way. I told you friends of Israel is significant to me. Uh, I came to Atlantic City in 1977 from California. After I got saved, I, uh, I moved home for a while, then I moved to California, and then I met the director of Friends of Israel who invited me to Atlantic City. And I, and I met my wife there. And when, in, in thinking of the, uh, the time that we were there, we were walking along the boardwalk. And this is significant. I was raised with a grandmother living with us, and she was raised with her grandmother. We're walking along, we knew we were going to be married within two months of meeting, and we got married within six months of meeting, and we'll be celebrating our 40th anniversary this year. So we only knew each other a few months. But as we were walking along the boardwalk, I said, you know, we're going to get married, and I think we need to make a decision now. What happens if your parents or my parents need us? Are you prepared to live with them, to have them live with us? And she said, yeah, I, I think so. Uh, my grandmother lived with me. It was a great experience. I love my grandmother. I said, it's important that we do that uh, because not every couple wants to do that. They don't have to do that. I'm not advocating. I'm asking you right now, were you willing to do that? Because it's pretty important to me. I care about my parents, and they're not saved, and I want to be a witness. I don't know if it will ever happen, but let's make a decision. Well, fast forward a number of years, and my father-in-law passed away, and Alice's oldest sister passed away, and she, her mother was living with her. There was no decision. The decision was already made. We purposed in our heart. There's no emotion involved. When you purpose in your heart, when you make a decision, it doesn't mean everything's easy, but it does mean that the decision is made. That's important. And if you want to know the significance of what Daniel 
is doing here. You need to know he knew where he was going. He was not with people who could help him. In fact, there were hardly anybody who He was alone, really, with a few friends in an environment that was not gracious to believing Jewish people, to, to observant Jewish people. But he already made a decision. And, you know, if you look at church history, you know, this is... This year is the 500th anniversary of what Luther did 500 years ago. Anybody know what he did? He nailed, he, yeah, that's right. he nailed those, those theses to the wall. He purposed in his heart from the Word of God. He was going to not compromise on the Word of God. And by the way, he was putting his life on the line. And do you know in church history... If you do any traveling, it's a lot easier for me to study church history when I traveled. And I took a few courses when I was in Bible college. I got to tell you, it was dry. I could barely, in 1122, this happened. And in 13, oh, it drove me crazy. But when you go to the places, I went to Edinburgh uh, in Scotland, where Christians were martyred, lit up like candles, lit up, burned, because they wouldn't compromise the word of God. They stood on the word of God. How could they do that? How, how, why wouldn't they just say, oh, forget about it. I'm not going to burn up. Because they purposed in their heart. You know, you might be facing something today where you need to purpose in your heart. You need to get before the Lord. You need to put the teaching that you've had through the years and make some, some statements in your head that you're not going to compromise. That's why I like that song, Dare to Be a Daniel. Because he purposed in his heart that no matter what happened, he was going to live for God, even in that Gentile environment. So we have the whole food thing, keeping kosher. <laughs> keeping kosher. I kept kosher. I want to tell you something. Most Jewish people don't keep kosher. If you want to find a Jewish community, look for Chinese restaurants. Not kidding you. I, I've been all around the country, I could tell you. That, and, it, and in fact, there is kosher Chinese restaurants in Israel. There are plenty of them. We love, boy, do we love Chinese food. But for those of us who don't keep kosher, oh, sweet and sour pork and shrimp and th shrimp and lobster sauce, we, we love it. But keeping kosher is part of the Torah. Why did God give us the law? Why did God give Daniel the law? Oh, so he could be healthy. No, it's not so he could be healthy. It's so that he could be different. Different. Oh, that's a horrible word today. Different. Why were Jewish people supposed to not mix certain cloths together? Because they had to be different. Not the same as everyone. What do we all want? We want to be the same. We want to blend in. We don't want to stand out. So Daniel talked to Ashpenaz and said, hey, let's just do a test. And at the end of the test, we'll see what happens. And we know what happened. He, it, he ate vegetables and water and looked better than the other people who were eating the king's food. How did that happen? Well, God had his hand in it. And I'm not guaranteeing you that will happen, by the way. Remember, I told you Christians got lit up. 
You could stand for God, have the victory, and be gone from the earth. Think about that. You still have the victory. It's just in a different way than what you thought. Daniel was prepared for that. And as we go through the book of Daniel, you're going to see his friends had the same thing, and he did later as well. That's important. Being willing to stand alone. You know, he did not have, according to John Butler, John Butler actually wrote a number of commentaries. Uh, David Levy actually gave me my copy of John Butler. And if you talk to David, David, are you here? There he is, there's his hand. You talk to David Levy about John Butler. Uh, I was not really familiar with him until David gave me the book. But here's a couple quotes from him. He did not have priority or position or popularity. He had purity. How often do we hear about that? I happen to be a sports fan, and one of the people I admire more than people will no ever know is a guy a lot of people admire, but I follow him wherever I can. His name is Tim Tebow. Do you know how many people make fun of Tim Tebow for his positions? And you know what he does in response to that? He smiles. Yeah. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, that's, that's great. Standing out is difficult. It's very difficult. And people who are willing to make a stand for God can suffer for it. Are you willing to dare to be a Daniel? Most people desire to be great, but not godly. Rich, hey, I'd like that for a while. I'd like to just try that, wouldn't you? I admit that. I would like to try it. Try being rich for a week. I think it'd be great. But we don't want to be righteous. Happy. Oh, that, look, I'm a grandparent. I can tell you, I sugar my grandkids up. I don't know. I sugar them up. I McDonald's them up. Happy meal them up. I, what, when they're at my house, my kids roll their eyes because I wasn't that way with them at all. But it's a new day in the Herzig house, I can tell you. And I want my grandkids happy. They stay at my house happy. Last time my granddaughter and grandson stayed with me, she's only two, she couldn't sleep. She slept with us, in the bed, with us. And it, I was up all night, I mean thrashing. Happy, I want happy. I do, I do. But outside of that, Butler was talking about we want to be happy, but not holy. Think about that. Daniel was interested in being godly, not great. He was interested in being righteous. He didn't care about wealth. And he was interested in being holy. Look, the society and culture we live in is so mesmerizing for all of us that we get caught up in all of it. And unless we're careful, we forget why God left us here. He left us here for a purpose. Daniel seemed to understand that. Not exactly the way we do now, but he obviously seemed to understand that it was important for him to be obedient, to follow what God said to him regardless of what might happen. 
We need to be that way. We need to be that way. Well, so we have the 10 days, the pulse, King James Version. Uh, so if those of you who have the King James, pulse is vegetables and water and bread. Uh, Daniel's career, excellence. He continued in excellence. He followed God. He pursued God. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. Think about that. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. I, I often listen, my wife and I actually do our devotions with J. Vernon McGee. Uh, I have him on my app. I highly recommend it. I, I, he, I first book I ever studied with any believer was actually the book of Esther, 6.30 in the morning when I was living in California with J. Vernon McGee. And just, a, just, just great to, to go through uh, the Bible with him and to listen to the importance of simple obedience. Obedience. Following the word. Excellence. So, in this case, it doesn't mean it happened here, it's going to happen to you. But in this case, as we read Daniel, as Daniel was faithful and obedient to God, God had set him aside for a special purpose. He didn't know what that special purpose was when he was growing up. He was just obedient. But God used him, and he grew in knowledge and skill and learning and wisdom. He was given insights that no one else had. I can't guarantee that for you. But I can tell you this, that in every situation we as believers are in, somebody is watching you. Somebody is watching you. When we moved into our first property that I purchased, it was a condominium. And uh, we were living on the top floor of a whole bunch of other, it was called the penthouse. It was that, believe me, it was not a penthouse. Every time somebody went into the garage, since that was right below us, you know, you know. But it was our first place. It was our first place. And so Sunday came after we moved in, and off to church we go. You know, take the kids, and off we go. We came back. Well, a couple weeks after that, uh, my wife uh, had heard a knock on the door, and it was a neighbor there who uh, knocked on the door, introduced herself, and uh, just said, I know you moved in and all that. And she said, could I ask you a question? Yeah, yeah, sure. She, uh, are you a Christian? Do you know Christ? She said, yeah. She said, well, I thought so. I told my husband, we watched you uh, each Sunday and noticed you took your family to church. I didn't know that somebody was looking at me, uh, but they are. They are. You see, everything you do is significant. You might not think that, but as we think of the book of Daniel and think of what God had in store for him, his background, his upbringing, the law that he learned would all play a role when he would come into a the most powerful country. Babylon was a powerful country. Nebuchadnezzar, all these things beginning to happen, and he, every, every step of the way, people are noticing him, number one, and God is using him for his glory. And ultimately, this chapter is the foundation for the rest of the book. It's the foundation. It's who Daniel and his friends are. And I would say to you this, this evening, as, as we close, 
that the foundation that you have, if you're here and know Christ, is Christ. And he should be the one that you set your eyes on and follow. Don't worry who is watching you, just know that they are. And be willing to be a person of integrity. You're under oath, like Frank Simensky is under oath. You have to tell the truth, right? Let's stand for him and dare, dare to be a Daniel. For more audio resources, including MP3 downloads of past prophecy conferences, visit us at foi.org.